that should be our, our glide path as we look at what it is to be a Christian, that our focus is so intently gazing upon the wonder and the beauty of Christ that when people look at us, they say, what is, what is that person doing? And it's not that they're looking at us as though there's something special or magical or wonderful about us, but that they realize that there's something that's outside of us as Christians that draws us. There's something that's not tangible for them yet. And they see that it's tangible for us, that it drives us, that it, that it motivates us, that it pushes us forward. And when they see that, that's often a hook that God will use to bring them in. Now we know ultimately it's the, the moving of the Holy Spirit on a man, woman, or child's heart. But there's also the necessity of the presentation of the gospel that they hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that they repent of their sins and believe the gospel unto salvation. But why not be something? Why not be someone who's so focused on Christ that people stop looking at you or me or we and they want to know what we have and they want to know what we worship? So if you will, before we get into our sermon text, please bow with me. God, move as only you can move. Lord, we need grace because we are incapable of doing anything apart from you. And open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts. Lord, and let us be people who um, bring this inside, who distill this truth down, and then who are willing in, our, in, in, in whatever capacity you have given us to regurgitate this truth, to go out and to proclaim the name of Jesus in our life, in our actions, in our interactions. God, that you would, um, again, Father, move me out of the way. Lord, let your truth shine through and, and let us just gaze upon Christ. Father, it's in your name we pray. In accordance with your will we ask. Amen. So again, our sermon text is uh, John chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, this is one of the most beautiful uh, truths of the deity of Christ as we look at the Gospel of John, or as we look at almost any Gospel account. You can't really just get a, a dart out and throw that more center to, to scream out that says, this is God. This is God. This is, this is the holy triune God who has now chosen to condescend, to come down and to be with His people. We'll see later in verse 14 when it says that, he, that, that the Word became flesh, that Jesus Himself, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt, literally in the Greek, is, it means tabernacled. So He set up His tent with us. And what do we see in the Old Testament? We see literally with the tabernacle. When, when God's giving the plans to Moses, He literally, His, his presence, His manifest presence descends. And his glory fills the tabernacle, and he is with his people. And so we see that more fully manifested in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So, starting in verse 3. 
all things came into being through him, Jesus, and apart from him, Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. Again, over and over and over and over again, what are we learning here? The deity of Christ. This is something that we can't walk past. It's something that we can't refute. It's something that we can't not deal with. We have to deal with this. We have to know this. This is a tenet. This is a hallmark. This is the bedrock of Christianity. Why? Because some really weird things start to happen if we do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the eternally begotten Son of God, and God. We walk into some really muddy waters. All right? You, you, you might... You might Ultimately, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, some guy named Jim Jones or some other weird cult leader might wind up wandering in and trying to draw some of you away, claiming that he's the Messiah. And then people drink Kool-Aid laced with cyanide and die. It's harsh, but it's true. We have to understand that this was a, a, a once-in-a-lifetime a, a once event for Jesus literally to become flesh on the earth through a baby to grow up, live a perfect life, have a perfect ministry, be slaughtered at the hands of wicked men, yet in accordance with the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of the Almighty God. I've said this before, I'll say it again. God sacrificing God in order that we might have a relationship with God. That's the gospel right there. That's the entirety of the gospel. Our first point. Everything that exists is contingent upon the Christ. Everything that exists is contingent upon the Christ. So let's, let's look at John's argument, specifically here in verse 3, made from both the positive and the negative. So this is a great stylistic way of basically him saying, look, can't paint this truth more clearly. I'm going to paint it positively, and then I'm going to put a negative connotation, and they're both going to say the same thing. Positively, everything, everything, all things came into being from the Greek pos. So all things, everything, anything. That, that excludes nothing. So everything that we see floating around in the universe or on earth, it ultimately at least the base elements of those things, who created them? Jesus. Who sustains them? Jesus. And that's a beautiful truth. That's an amazing truth. Every single thing that exists in the heavenlies, every spirit, uh, every angel, every cherub, every seraph, uh, oh goodness, the seas, the sand in the sea, dolphins, uh, you know, weird looking animals with long noses, yep, Jesus made them. Every bit of them, every single one of them. And, and have you ever literally just stopped and not skipped over the text and just thought about the implications here? Because everybody knows Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Everyone knows that. But not a lot of people look at that as Christ was present in the creation of the earth, in the creation of the universe. But we see a glimmer of that even early in Genesis when it says, let us make man in our image. We see a plurality in the Godhead even in early Genesis. Now let's look at the negative connotation. Uh, here's the monumental argument that John makes to drive this peg firmly into the hole, into the board. Nothing, I'm going to say this again, nothing exists apart from Christ. You see, what John has continued to do is draw out the fact that the Son was and is not some creature who just became flesh 
and then did some really neat magic tricks. That wasn't the purpose nor the intent of Jesus Christ to come down and illusion us or to do something uh, so miraculous that we just thought he was really cool, maybe a prophet. He isn't some ancient Near East David Copperfield or Houdini. He wasn't that. But he is the God who made the rabbit and the molecules that comprise the hat that the rabbit gets pulled out of. Think about that for a second. The base elements. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, R.C. Sproul, said this. This was one of his famous quotes. There are no maverick molecules. There is no such thing as a maverick molecule. Literally every single molecule, every subatomic particle, every atom, every electron, every neutron in the universe obeys the commands of God. He's sovereign over everything. Newsflash, and this is just logic. I'll step away from the Bible for a second so nobody thinks that I'm just going to use that to argue this point. If you're 99.999 repeating percent sovereign, you are not sovereign. Think about that for a second. That's like saying, I'm totally in control, but there's this little thing over here that I'm not in control of. So if God is sovereign, and the Bible does assert that he's sovereign, then he's completely sovereign. And that's amazing. And that beautiful truth is attested to Jesus Christ himself. And when we look at the fact that he created David Copperfield and he created Houdini and he intricately wove them together in their mother's prospective wombs, again, it points back to the fact that he and he alone is God. Not a magician. His argument, nothing, not one thing would exist apart from Christ. And if it exists positively, it is there because the Son created it and sustains it. So Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for by him, and this would be Jesus, this was Paul to the church at Colossae, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Primary importance here. We must, I must, you must, we collectively, we as Christians, must look to Christ as God. It's imperative. We absolutely have to do that. The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wonderful, perfect, infinite God. Christ. These few verses speak the dire necessity of affirming the deity of Christ. So you see, if we do not have Christ as God, here's some terrible things that happen. There's no possibility for the atonement of sin if Christ was not God. There's no possibility that Christ could propitiate the wrath and the justice necessary to make God pleased. There's absolutely no way whatsoever there could be forgiveness of sin, which means there could be no salvation, which means in Jesus Christ's own words that literally the only thing that could happen is when you die, you will go to the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what happens if Jesus was not God. That's what happens if Jesus was just some uh, cool public speaker, magician, or uh, philosopher. If he's not God, we have nothing. If Jesus is not God, here's, here's another argument. Literally, 
everything that exists in creation would disintegrate. Because we just read in Colossians that he literally holds all things together by the power of his word. And if he is not God and he does not exist in any way, guess what would happen? That's what would happen. Everything that we know that has matter in it would just disintegrate. It would go away. It would cease to exist. It could not be unified. It could not be diversified. It would just be dead. (laughs) Nothingness. Absolute nothingness. Now, the truth of this section should drive us to our knees in the worship of God, for He is and what He's made. We should worship Him for what He is, who He is, who He was, who He will be, and what He's made. My brother and I, uh, my brother's visiting from Texas right now, my brother and I, uh, we went up to the top of the, uh, the belfry, and we climbed up in there and looked at the maker's mark on the bell. And when we looked at some of the engineering that was inside of there, uh, they have these long tie rods. They're about an inch and a half, uh, I would say about an inch and a half wide, just circular bar stock, basic, not bar stock, round stock. There we go. I'm not a, I'm not a, a metal guy, all right? So they have this about one and a half inch round stock, and these things are probably the better part of 20 feet long, and they go all the way up to right above where the bell is, and basically the way that we look at them, the way that they engineered them, it's designed to suck the, the steeple down to keep the steeple from flopping around when the winds get too high. And as we looked at that engineering, we were, wow, man, that's awesome. That's really cool to see how they did this, you know, in 1879-ish, 1878-ish. It's phenomenal that they, they constructed this in this way and it all works together. Okay, so here, here's the argument. What would happen if some guy, you know, just grabbed all the plans for that, all the designs for that, all the architectural wizardry that went into this thing and threw them into a fire and said, let's just have those guys over there who know nothing about building make this church? Would we, would we be sitting in the sanctuary right now? Well, we might, but it might look a lot different, Right? a lot weirder, <laughs> or, or it would have collapsed on itself at some point. There was a plan, there was intent in that architect and that engineer and whoever came together all worked perfectly to build something beautiful. And even to build beautiful things that most people will never see. Most people will never see the architecture in the top of that belfry. Yet it's there. It exists. Here's the same argument. Jesus created everything that you can see and everything that you can't. The physical and the spiritual. And if he did not exist as God, then this is all an illusion, and there's no point for us being here. But I'll make the argument biblically that he was true, that there is a historical Jesus, that there is a real Jesus who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. I can assure you um, that this doctrine, the deity of Jesus Christ, will come under great attack very shortly. Historically, it's been under attack pretty much since uh, Jesus came during his earthly ministry, but I guarantee that you will see specifically the deity of Jesus Christ attacked at a public level, if not a government level, before too long. Look at any socialist or communist country and watch their history. See what they did with Jesus. See what they tried to reduce him to. See how they tried to pull away all the hope and all the love and all the order and all the beauty of Christ and replace it with a government system. I guarantee that that will happen here 
in the coming decade, you will see an all-out attack on the deity of Jesus Christ. To the secular world, Christ will simply be a great teacher or a psychologically deluded individual. If they, society, can reduce Jesus Christ to that, then they will find themselves on equal footing with the Christ, which means that they won't have to listen to what he says because we're all about having our rights and our freedoms and our, op our opinions and our choices, so on and so forth. If we can take away his deity, we don't have to obey him. If we take away his deity, then we don't have to follow Matthew 28, 19 and 20. If we take away his deity, we don't have to get into Exodus chapter 20 and deal with the Ten Commandments. Then we can just live exactly how we want. Romans chapter 1. That's what you get. Romans chapter 1. We'll actually talk about that here in a little bit. That being said, man, that's idolatry. That's what it boils down to. That is, that is pure idolatry. That we have elevated ourselves or something that we believe or something that we think to be either on par or above Jesus Christ. So in that twisted delusion, we will have violated commandment number one. We will have a God before the one true God. Nine times out of ten, it will be ourselves or our opinions or our own thoughts. That's idolatry. Let's not be that. Let's not do that. Our next verse in this exposition, John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Here's our main point. The source of life and light is Christ. Source of life and light is Christ. Now, before we break down uh, this particular verse, I want to hear what John has said. I want you to hear what John has said just a, a little bit later uh, on in his own gospel in John 5.26. Let's leave this one up here for a second, John 5.26. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. So in the first clause, if you will, before we even get to the parentheses, we see that the Father, God, has life in himself. He's imparted that to Christ, all right? So as Christ came, became flesh, dwelt among us, God also, what did he do? He gave to the Son to have life in himself. Now, this is a really important context and, 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 and concept here right in the beginning. And we'll explain that in just a second. But let's look also in John 8, 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, this concept of having life and light in himself is indicative of his divine nature. I'll say that one more time. That's important. The fact or this concept of having life and light in himself is indicative of his divine nature. We have, to, we have to latch on to that. We have to hold on to that. Now, this is traditionally coupled from an Old Testament understanding. When they, when they would talk about life and light, generally speaking, that would reflect wisdom and the law. Who do we see that perfectly culminated in? Wisdom and the law? A guy who literally walked out 613 Mosaic laws perfectly every single day of his life, his physical life here on earth, and who was the most wise ever, who created wisdom, who was wisdom, who is wisdom, who will be wisdom. All of that intersects with Christ. 
In the entirety of John's gospel account, these two terms, life and light, are used in a salvific sense or of having to do with salvation. However, in our primary text, specifically John 1.4, could you bring that one back up, please? John 1.4, this is appealing more to the fact that his life and light find source in him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So basically the argument that's being made here, and keep this up on the, ver- uh, up on the board for us, please. Um, it's not that just we learn this principle, all right, and then these become uh, the mode of our salvation. This is then how we're saved. That's not the argument that John's making here. He makes that argument throughout the entirety of the gospel past here. Here, primarily as he's focused on the deity of Christ, what he's trying to do is paint the fact that the means, how, where it comes from, where it dwells, is in Christ. That's the primary focus here. And so a lot of times we'll just mush all those into the same thing and make them all the same thing. Oh yeah, you know, life and light of Jesus, he's, you know, my life, my light, all that kind of stuff, which is true. But that's not the sense that it's being used here. It's, it's that this is the ground floor. This is where it came from. This is not speaking to salvation right now. This is speaking to the fact that it emanates from Christ Jesus himself that it comes from him, that it originates with him, that it starts with him. That's the argument that's being made. Hmm. What's made manifestly known in Christ here is that he is the life and the light. And we also see that the entire human race has the stamp of the creator, Jesus, on their hearts, on their minds, and on their souls. Romans 1, 18 through 21 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Here it is. For since the creation of the world, and who created the world? Who's the argument that we're making here? Christ. Sustained by him, created through him, upheld by him, made for him. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they, foolish humanity, are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Not only is the truth of Christ found in there, but you are literally watching this walked out nationally and internationally every single day. Many of you have seen this walked out in your childhood with people involved in your families or friends where literally their foolish hearts become darkened and they become so ensnared and entangled and entrapped by sin that literally even their ability to reason from a human perspective is degraded, is brought down, is diminished, is reduced. I can't tell you how many times I've, 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 I've preached to people in prison who are exponentially more wise than people on the outside. They just got caught early and they did something really stupid, really foolish, and they'll be stuck in prison for a long time and they will look and they'll talk about how people are like sheep led to the slaughter. Look how foolish these people are. Buying into this trap, buying into that trap, buying into this sin, buying into that sin, and literally they become slaves to it. Some of the freest people that I've met are sitting in prison right now. Some of the freest people that I've met are sitting in prison right now 
in Harlan County, Kentucky. Because though they were once foolish and darkened, God chose to move on their behalf and open their eyes to the truth of the gospel to see the wickedness of their own lives and their own sins. They turned from that sin and believed the Christ. They have eternal salvation now and they can see. They're not blind. They're not sitting around in the dark. As it pertains to that section in Romans, the truth of God, the truth that He's real, is evident within them. That's what the text says. They cannot deny that. How can I prove that logically for you for a second? I have been all over the world. My brother has been all over the world, both with the military. And we've sat down and we've talked a couple of times about the fact that it does not matter where you go, into what civilized culture or what pagan culture or what first world or third world culture you go into, everyone there will have a concept of the fact that it's wrong to murder. Hmm. Everyone there gets really upset when you try and steal their stuff. Everybody there gets really upset when you, when you hide behind the fence and you look at their boat and you figure out how you can steal it later. Everyone there hates it when you try and steal their wife. Ten Commandments. Emblazoned on the heart of every single man, woman, and child on the planet. Though they knew God, they did not honor Him as such. And so what happens, their foolish minds, their darkened hearts continue in this downward descent and they end up flaming out, utterly flaming out. Tell me you have not seen that in your own lives, with people in your lives, if you have not seen it in yourself. Because I've seen it in myself. And I've seen it in the lives of people in my own family. The beautiful part about this is that even those who are darkened, even those who are darkened, they're not so powerful in their darkness that King Jesus can't come and kick them in the chest and give them a new heart and breathe new life into them and give them hope and a future in Him. That's the beauty of the Gospel. We continue on. How can I assert that? John 1.5 The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now some of your translations, depending, may have uh, overcome. So some of yours may read something along the light. The lines of the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. A couple different translations there. Ultimately, what both of these are, are saying is that nothing will be illumined without the Christ. Nothing will be illumined without the Christ. Some commentators are divided over whether or not we should use the word comprehend or overcome. I like both, to be perfectly honest. Uh, there's, there's kind of three camps, I would argue. There are those that argue for just comprehend, and some argue for just overcome, and there's some who argue for both, and I fall into that, that kind of middle ground. Why? Because number one, the word can be translated as either, and both are true. Out of the Greek, katalambano is either. It fits theologically, it fits hermeneutically, it fits logically. So let's look first at the fact that the darkness will not be overcome by the light. So we're going to look at that if that's one of your translations. 
Now, if I were to take a bright light and shine it into the darkness, and I actually have a pretty bright light here, and we don't have a lot of dark stuff around here, but this light is so bright that literally when I shine it, you could see it almost anywhere in this entire sanctuary, even on the bottom of the lights up there. So a very, very bright light. There is no such thing as some magical device by which I could basically rewire this and change some science in it, which is way above my head, and then create a little gun that could make darkness. That doesn't exist. So when I go outside on a dark night, when I walk out of my house and there's a noise in the bushes, I pull out my light and I can shine it. And it will illuminate everything in the beam. And no matter how angry the darkness is with the fact that I have a super high-powered light, it will not beat back the light. It will literally not overcome it. It's impossible. It can't happen. Now, uh, again, I mean, can you fathom that, thinking about that for a second, having a device that could make darkness? That's like counterintuitive. We wouldn't even really, you know, maybe the military might like that for, you know, cloaking a tank or you know, making a battleship disappear or something like that, even though they don't use battleships anymore. Total aside, nonetheless. Jesus, as we've just argued, was literally the emanating source of light, of life. He still is. And it shines out of him, and he's not going to produce darkness. He's not going to produce uh, a situation where it's, where it's difficult to navigate the truth that he's explaining to those who are his. John 12:35. Understand that those who hate God, those who do not love God, hate light. That's a biblical principle. That's one that John uses over and over and over again in his book. Uh, so John 12:35. so Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. While you walk, you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. Very few people I've met in my life who were just so flamed out and hate God so much um, and are so messed up by sin that they will say, I'm going to hell and I'm proud of it. I've met a few like that, but not many. But even those people who would argue or articulate that they're okay with that and they're all right with that are so ridiculously blinded to the truth of how hell is presented. Jesus says weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, eternal darkness, uh, great fire, uh, where the worm doesn't die, or basically the maggot that's eating your corpse does not perish. That's, that's hard language. That's difficult language. I understand that. That might seem, ooh, man, that's intense. It's biblical language. That's Isaiah and Jesus right there. And Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else combined. Why? Because he was trying to tell people of the truth of what was going on. And if they continue to blunder around and walk in darkness, where are they going to wind up? In the place where there's eternal darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Great fire. Terrible place. Last part of John 12.35 again. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. You're blind. You can't see. You're going to stumble into a ditch. Ultimately, spiritually speaking, you'll die and go to hell. Secondly, let's look at the truth that those who are in the darkness cannot comprehend 
the things of God. They cannot comprehend the light. So we've seen the overcome. Now we're going to deal with the comprehend. John 9, verses 39 through 41. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard of these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. And so let's set the T for this. Again, the Pharisees were kind of the religious superstars of the day. They were like celebrity pastors, if you will. All right? They were kind of celebrity churches, if you will. And they thought that they were super holy. And they thought that they were so holy that they didn't really have any sin. And Jesus is literally saying to them, uh, fools, blind guides, idiots, if we want to break it down and really look at some of the underlying argumentation. He's, foolish people, people who have the truth of God in front of them and who try to pretend like they're actually one of God's, yet their foolish hearts are so dark and wicked, they can't even see it. And they think that they themselves are clean. Uh, at one point, Jesus makes the argument, he said, you're like a, a beautiful whitewashed tomb, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You're like a beautiful cup or a beautiful dish, yet inside is full of rottenness. That's the same principle here. These people think that they have it. They think that they have a proper understanding of God, yet they're walking around blind. Oh, goodness, what's the parallel? Darkness. And so we see that when people are blind, that's coupled with the spiritual principle of the fact that they're in darkness, which means they have no understanding, which also means that they can't see. And all those things are used in the Gospel of John and the other Gospels to explain the truth of the fact that unless you have Christ, unless you are literally, you have the light and the life of Christ, you are dead and you have no light. You are in darkness. John 3.19 This is the judgment that the light, me, Jesus, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Total aside, but what happens in a pitch black room if you have a cock cockroach infestation and you flip on a giant light? What happens? Right? That's exactly what happens. The cockroaches run away. Lived in a house like that once when I was young, and I used to actually wave goodbye to the cockroaches when we turned the lights on. That's a true story. My mom was here. She'd, she'd validate that. My brother was still in diapers. He doesn't remember it. But that being said, um, people who are in darkness hate the light. They just don't like it. In the same way that when the gospel is taught and preached and articulated and people start living it out in their lives, this is the only, there's, there's only two possibilities. Either you will see that and you will repent of your sins and be converted or you will turn against it with the fierceness of an animal. We've seen that walked out biblically and we've seen that walked out physically. Spiritual blindness is equated with being in darkness and not having life. This is why understanding that Jesus' life and light is so incredibly important. So you can't have light or enlightenment, spiritually speaking, if your life is not imparted to you by the Holy Spirit of God. You will sit in darkness and you will have life without Him. How can I prove that biblically? John 3.3 Jesus answered and said to him, and the him who he's talking to is Nicodemus, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless this is contingent upon, there is no other way that you can even see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Hmm. See where we're going with this. Seeing, coming out of blindness, coming out of darkness, coming out of spiritual death, you cannot even see unless you've been born again. John 3.3 is one of the most beautiful and encouraging verses that I can share with you, but you must be born again to understand it. To actually see the implications behind this verse and how deep this verse is and how much this counters normal, air-quoted Christianity in America, you have to be born again. Otherwise, it's going to hit that brain and pop right off and mean absolutely nothing. You must be born again to even see the kingdom of heaven. Now, Listen to me. I've said this a hundred times. I'm saying it again, even in the context of this. You cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you've been born again. The word for see here in the Greek is iedon. Iedon. And in order to sharpen our understanding of this verse, I want to use every possible translation of the word iedon, which is the only Greek word that they use here in any manuscript. I want to use just that Greek word and I want to translate it in every way humanly possible to show you that this is not obscure and to show you that this is not translated in some obscure or weird way, but we've got the right understanding here. Jesus answered and said to him, again, him being Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see, he cannot perceive, he cannot behold he cannot look at, he cannot witness, he cannot see with any certainty, and he could not see in a past tense the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you can't see, can't perceive, behold, look at, witness, see with any certainty, or see in the past tense. There is no obscure way to translate that to say something different. Every one of those mean the exact same thing you will not even put your eyes on the things of Christ in any, sal any, any salvific manner, any saving way whatsoever. You may be able to assert to the truth of the fact that Christ existed, the truth that he had an earthly ministry. You may even be able to actually assert that he was the Son of God. But that does not mean that you are saved. Unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. We understand if we don't see the kingdom of God, that we'll be blind and we'll live in darkness rather than the light. We'll be ignorant to the things of God. We'll be incapable of laying our eyes on the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. But you, but you who are his, you who are Christians, you who have been adopted in the family of God, you have been born again, you who have repented of your sin and believed the Christ, what does this do to you? What does this verse make you think or what does it make you feel? Should do some of the following. It should give you great fear. Great fear. I don't like that. I don't want to fear God. God's all lovey and cuddly. He's like the big Santa Claus. If you've read the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs, you'll understand that the basic 
understanding of God, having a basic knowledge of who he is, begins with a fear of him. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Hmm. A fear of him. Should give you great encouragement. Why? Because you've been brought out of spiritual death into spiritual life. You've been brought out of darkness into light. You've been brought out of being blind into now seeing. That in itself should give you great encouragement. It should give you great joy that this truth is expressed in such a way that you even have the ability to guess what? Put your eyes on it. That's beautiful. That's an amazing truth that you can grasp. And if you can actually grasp that, and if it is efficacious in your life, if, if it has brought forth change in you, how amazing is that? That's reason to give joy that, oh, thank, the, thank God, I have been born again. I do understand these things. I see these things changing in my life. I see my love for Christ growing. What is, that should produce joy. It should give you confidence. Number one, that, that God's real, that he exists, that he's true, that he actually sent his son Jesus, that there is a way to be saved. Should give you a great love for God. Why? Because while we were flaming out in our own wicked sin, those of us who are now Christians, God heaped upon his son, whom he slaughtered on a cross, our sin. And the only way, the only possible way that we can have right standing and right relationship with God is if Christ was God. And thank God Christ was and is God. Because he absorbed every amount of the wrath that every man, woman, and child whom he purchased with his blood deserves. It should make you understand and see that the center of your faith is not you. That is Christ. It will point you and me to the cross when you and I desire to point to ourselves. It will solidify the fact that Christ alone is the foundation of all that is true and good and real. It will make you see your own lowly estate in his high and mighty and lofty position as he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, where he awaits the command of God to return and to establish his kingdom in fullness on this earth. So what reason do we have to praise him? Great reason. What reason do we have to magnify the Christ? Psalm 34, 1-3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continuously, continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast before the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt His name together. You imagine what's going to happen when all this corona madness, Lord's willing, floats away and it starts warming up outside and people are walking by this church and they hear people in here singing their hearts out to Jesus, magnifying the name of the Lord. What's going to happen when people in this sanctuary who have actually been changed by God are sharing their lives, they're sharing their testimonies, they're sharing scripture with people who don't know God. 
magnifying the name of the Lord in the presence of pagans, in the presence of non-believers who might be uncomfortable with the light, yet that's exactly what God is going to use to bring them life. His Holy Spirit, the work of Christ Jesus. Magnify Christ. Magnify the Lord. Pray in the Spirit. Love one another. And look like Christ. Bow with me. Lord, we fall so desperately short in the proper worship of You and our proper praise of You, but Father, we thank You that we can have understanding as to how we should love You and how we should praise You and how we should worship You and how we should pray to You in Christ. God, as, as He is our example, as He is our, our, both our earthly and our heavenly example, that we can look to, we can look at, because we have faith in Him, Lord, that we would emulate His life, that with the power of the Spirit, those who belong to, to You, those who belong to Him, that through the power of the Spirit, God, we would work to look more like Christ every day. God, that our lives would reflect change that You have wrought in us, and that You would draw us closer and closer and closer and closer to You, and that through that drawing, God, that people would see there's something different about our lives, there's something different about the way that we act, there's something different about the way that we talk, and, and there's something different about the way that we worship You, and we love You, and we adore You, and how we care about Your Word. Father, that this would be a, a time, God, where this church is just bursting into flames, God, over our love for You. God, that we would constantly see the truth of the fact that Christ is God. Christ is holy. Christ is perfect. Christ is perfectly righteous and perfectly just. That as we experience these things, as we understand these things, God, that you would drive us forward in a lost and wicked and pervase generation, in a messed up world, to do what you've called us to do, which is to be what? Salt. To be light. To be heralds of the truth of Jesus Christ. To be proclaimers of the gospel. To be worshipers of you. God, grant us more grace so that we don't fail in those things. Give us more understanding so that we can revel in these things. And give us more love. God, give us more love so that we can, we can show that these things are tangible. We love You. We praise You. We glorify you and we honor you. Father, it's in your name we pray in accordance with your will we ask. Amen.